0: already we thank you we ask that in this time of study that our hearts would be scored that we'd be poked and prodded by the one true living God through your word which is active and alive and sharper than a two-edged sword I pray that I don't get in the way of this teaching that our hearts are open to what you have to teach us ask for your grace and your mercy as we worship you through the study of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll have a seat. All three of you. All right. So. I'm sorry. Some of you are like, they did announcements, and then we sang, and I was sitting. So I just, I don't know. No, no worries. If we have not met, my name is Mark. Uh, the church has a sense of humor and has me fill in from Pastor Robert once in a while. And so, um, if you do not have a Bible, the ushers will get one to you. We love the Bible here at Calvary Chapel. If you're new, welcome. If you don't have a Bible, just put your hand up. No shame in it. Grab a Bible. You can write in this Bible. You can take it home. You can do whatever you wish. In fact, the church just got a new shipment of Bibles because people are taking them home. That's a good thing. And if you will, open up to Mark chapter 7, Matthew, Mark. chapter 7, everyone there, Matthew, Mark, chapter 7, It reads like this, Then the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to him. You notice that about Jesus? You notice he's never like fighting with common people? You ever notice he's always fighting with the religious people? People that have a whole bunch of church experience have been to all the Bible studies? Those are the people Jesus is tussling with. That's who he's going to tussle with today. Is the religious people. He says, Then the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to him, that's Jesus, having come from Jerusalem. This is the second delegation. Keep in mind these folks are on the war path to destroy Jesus. And so they're sending people down to examine him, to bring all that they've got before Jesus. He says, Now when they saw some of Jesus' disciples eat bread with defiled, that is, with unwashed hands, they found guilt. No surprise, religious people are condemning. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way holding the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other things which they have received and hold, like the washing of cups, pitchers, copper vessels, and couches. Then the Pharisees, I don't get the couches either. Some of you are just like, <laughs> me neither. Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the Of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands. Jesus answered them and said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? In historical context, that's not nice, by the way. Okay, a lot of you think it was like Kumbaya Jesus that like came to the earth to apologize for the mean old God of the Old Testament. He said some unnice things. And it was generally always directed at the religious people. I can give you a quick list, because I'm weird and have this written down in my Bible. He's called people blind, brood of vipers, fools, lawless, liars, whitewashed tombs of your father, the devil. Jesus said things that were, by earthly terms, not nice. So he says, hypocrites, and keep in mind, what's a hypocrite? What's a hypocrite? Someone that sets a standard and fails to meet it. Nope, it's called being a sinner. Welcome to the club. A hypocrite is someone that knows the truth and steers people away from it. The truth. And they steer people away from it. So he says, what did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? So the the religious people come with their traditions, and Jesus does what? He quotes scripture. He says, but this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Verse 7, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups and many other such things you do. Jesus said to them, all too well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. Skip down to verse 13. It says, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition, which you have handed down and many such things you do. We're going to launch into an admittedly academic study. Okay? So w- when pastors get up and they preach, it, it, good preaching always points to Jesus, but there's a lot of times there's, there's underlying thrust, there's an underlying pull to the teaching. Sometimes it's to really tug at your heart and to get you to fall in love with Jesus more. Sometimes it's to mobilize your feet to get you to move for the kingdom. Sometimes it gets your hands dirty in ministry and to serve the people. But sometimes it's to engage your mind. And Paul lays out the case in Colossians. He says, good doctrine comes in through your head. Once properly understood, it moves down to your heart and evokes a response. That response will produce works by your hands. Good doctrine goes through your head, your heart, and your hands. Paul said that, not me. He says it comes in through your head. It's properly understood. It evokes an emotional response. And then, of course, good works are a sign of that emotional response that faith. And it works itself out in your hands. And so today I just want us to step back for a quick second and understand that I'm going to ask you to engage your mind this morning. It's going to be academic. It's going to have some very involved slides because I'm a PowerPoint dork, okay? I just, I mean, it fades in when you want it to. It's amazing, right? It's like 40-year-old technology. I'm still geeked on it, okay? But I don't want you to get caught down in the details, I don't want you to think that some of the A students already have your pens ready and you've got like a whole clean page. You're like, I'm going to get every single bullet point watch, right? And you're going to scribble it down with every reference. Please don't. I don't want you to miss the arc of what I'm getting to, of what Jesus was getting to, all right? So you can certainly write down notes, of course. If you've got questions, come up afterwards. Give me your email. I'll send you the slides. I'll send you my notes, whatever. People did it after the first service. Where'd you get that graph? Cool. Yeah, we're going to have graphs. It's that bad, right? And so... (laughs) All right, just come up and and just let me know and I'm going to get you the material. But I don't want us to miss something. The point of this teaching, the point of Jesus' understanding of the scripture was to say, look, here's all the details and we'll do justice to them and we will honor them because they're intricate and we can have confidence in them. But with one purpose, to have confidence in God's word. In both senses. Confidence in God's word, which we hold today. And confidence in God's word as Jesus come as flesh. That is the point. My point is to saturate you and to empower you to go out into ministry with the confidence that God, yes, God has declared himself. We don't declare God in his word. God declares himself through his word. And so this is an academic study as I said and it, it stems from the five soleil. The five soleil is, as you know, the Protestant Reformation. We fall under Protestant theology. This is not an anti-Catholic sermon. I will tell you that. It's rooted in the history that came up from the, the, the bend away from the Catholic Church at the time. But this is not about talking about what we don't believe. This is affirming what Scripture tells us. That's what this sermon is about. So if you come from a, a Catholic background, if you're currently a Catholic and visiting, welcome. Come up and talk afterwards. We'll hang out. All right, but this stems from what's known as the Five Soleil. and in five seventeen there was a Protestant Reformation. I got a D in history class in high school, so don't think I'm a history buff or anything. Somebody like you should not be teaching if you got a D, right? All the teachers are like, "That's terrible," right? (laughs) So it's it's going to be historical, but it's not going to be like crazy because I don't get half of it. Okay, so. And so in 517, there was the Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther penned the thesis on the, we all hear that, and, and depending on how you decipher when it ended, it was about 131 years, and God saw fit to bring up the printing press, and the reformers, and Calvin, and Martin, and all this sort of stuff, right? And it was this, this division that divided theological terms between the Roman Catholic Church of the day and the Protestant Reformers. And the five sole are simply the five Latin phrases that emerged from this time period. Okay, if you guys have been coming to the Sunday nights and you saw me step in for Zach when he was off doing all that crazy good kingdom work, right, and I'm just here just, you know, teaching, and uh, he's he's kicking back the gates of hell in Uganda and gleanings and that sort of, thing. I'm not, I'm not, the pulpit's important as well, but, right, he's out there sweating and I'm like, eh, I think I'll wear a sweater today, <laughs> you know, right, and it'll be white and won't be dirty or anything, okay. And, and I already taught through kind of two of these, and I'll give you a sneak peek. On September 8th, I'm going to be speaking again, and I'm going to be teaching on one of them as well. The five solae are essentially sola scriptura, which is scripture alone, which we're studying today. And it goes into sola fide, which is faith alone, sola gratia, which is grace alone, solus Christus, Christ alone, and soli deo gloria, which is to the glory of God alone. I'm going to teach on solus Christus on September 8th. How the whole—we're just going to do a casual study through the sixty-six books of the Bible, right? Just really casual, just the whole Bible, and how it's all about Jesus, right? So, if you've ever wondered about that, come back. Come back next week too. Rob's back, praise God. That whole thing, right? All right. So, but we're going to take a look at the first one, which is Sola Scriptura, and what this means is that Scripture alone is our highest authority. Some of you aren't shocked. i are like, I get it. I get it. I'm sitting in the Calvary Chapel for crying out loud. They tell us this every week, right? Three types of people are going to possibly be offended during the sermon. Three types of people. The first type is the one that says there's so many contradictions, there's so many errors, this can't be verified, this can't be reliable. Quite possibly I'm going to offend you. You're religious, you're bringing your tradition, you're bringing their worldly views, and you're saying they're on par with God's. And Jesus shows up He says, you know what, I'm going to offend you. You're a hypocrite. You know the truth and you're steering people away from it. The other type of person is the person that thinks the copy that I hold in my hand is perfect. Not a single error in it. Uh Uh-oh. And now Calvary Chapel got quiet. Right? (laughs) Some of you think the copy that you hold in your hand is 100% accurate. 100% pure to the original manuscripts. You're going to be offended a little bit. Don't worry. We'll work through it. Okay? The third type of person is the people that think it doesn't matter either way. This book is of no consequence. These 66 books are of no consequence. Possibly all three categories of people are going to be slightly offended. And that's okay. We're going to work through it lovingly because Jesus was in the business of working through the scriptures lovingly. At times he taught in depth with the disciples. He went through the entire, could you imagine that Bible study? He's like, "All right, open up the Old Testament. Which book? Eh, we're just going to do it all. Right? He died, rose, he hosted two Bible studies, right? Amazing. He was a Bible teacher. Greatest Bible teacher to ever live, Jesus Christ. Greatest missionary to ever live, Jesus Christ. Greatest construction worker to ever live, Jesus Christ. Right? And so Jesus taught very systematically, and at times he just simply said, you know what, there was a farmer and he had some seed. And so he, he, he taught in depth, but he also taught about the simple things that everyone could grasp. That's why he's the greatest Bible teacher ever. And so we're going to do this involved academic study, and it's this understanding, again, as scripture is our highest authorities, sola scriptura, scripture alone. This is not to be confused with solo scriptura. Some people here by accident may subscribe to solo scriptura. You may hear it at first and say, I like that. It sounds like scripture alone is our authority. I like that. You're sola scriptura. It's not biblical. Solo scriptura says the Bible alone is our authority. All right, now here's one of those exercises where I'm going to do my best to get 100% consensus. Raise your hand and keep them up as I ask questions. Keep your hands up. Raise your hand if you've ever played a sport. Raise your hand if you've ever played an instrument. No, everyone, keep your hands up. I'm trying to get 100% again. Don't worry, you'll get it. Okay, raise your hand if you've ever been in the theater. Raise your hand if you've ever driven a car. Just keep it up. So if you're from the sport thing, all right, come on. Eight o'clock, they were worried. I mean, come on, it's 9.30, wake up, all right? Has anyone learned any of those things from the Bible? You can put your hands down. Now. None of it. Where did you go? You went to a different authority for that, correct? This doesn't teach you how to perform open heart surgery. I got a cousin who's a doctor, a surgeon. Okay? He didn't learn medical practice from the Bible. He didn't say, well, scripture alone is my only authority. All right, we'll go cut that guy open. What does the Bible have to say about that? God killed some people in the Old Testament. Hold on. Right? He went to another authority. What this says is scripture alone is our highest authority. We see this every day and we don't realize it. We have a court system in America, yes? (laughs) Kind of. (laughs) We have politics in America, yes? (laughs) I can appreciate that. But we have a supreme court, yes? We have one supreme court that if needs to address an issue is always the ultimate authority. In a court system, yes? Imagine if there were two. Imagine if one Supreme Court said marriage is between a man and a woman, and another one says, eh, two consenting adults. What do you do? It'd be chaos. It would, nothing would get done. Everything and nothing would be done. Right? And so it says the highest authority. And so the issues that can be handled by lesser courts will be. But, If it is something the highest court addresses, that will always be the final authority. And so there are issues that you encounter that are not in the Bible. Hence, God gives us by his common grace, he gives us church authority, which is subject to scriptural authority. Right? It gives us government. Yeah, it's part of God's common grace. It's in the Bible, I get it. It's tough to believe, especially in California. Right? Part of God's common grace. Authority, teachers, professors, law enforcement. Right? Lesser authorities, all subject to the highest authority. When they contradict the highest authority, they're wrong. When the Bible, when God gave us Christian discernment and church leadership, they have the ability to discern things not described in the Bible for the best of the flock, correct? It goes wrong and we screw it up and the church subjects itself and repents. It happens. But scripture alone is our highest authority. And what we're referring to here is what's known as the formal principle. You're like, oh my gosh, we're already on like three terms already. There it is. Told you. This is what's known as a formal principle. This is where do you get your primary source of theology. What is theology? Theology is what? Stating a truth about God, correct? Theology, good theology begins, is sustained by, and ends with God. Not you. Not like I think. Anyone says I think, just be like, Bleh. Right? Theology, if you're engaging in people, I'm not theological. If you're stating something right or wrong about God, you're attempting to be theological. I'm not theological. I just think God loves everyone. You're being theological. He never would do it. You're being theological. You're stating something about him that you're declaring to be truth. That's theology. So a formal principle is stating what would be the core resource for theology that's different than a material principle which is just where do you get your central teachings from the church from the papacy from the congregation from elders that sort of thing that's a material principle this is a formal principle and what we have here is some of the different channels that came out of the protestant reformation and this understanding of their formal principle because this is not this th- this was a huge deal of course in the protestant reformation but i would argue it is still a huge deal it just manifests itself differently Oh, that we would have a whole bunch of Christians getting together to dissect just the small points of Christianity, right? We don't even get the basics right anymore. We don't. And the reformers thought that this was a foundational piece. That's why in the five sole, it started with sola scriptura. The Bible alone is our highest authority because you can't justify the rest without that. You can't. We're studying through 1 John with Pastor Rob right now. Truth, love, righteousness. It hinges on you understanding truth. I'm all about the love. How do you know that's true? Well, God is love. I love that too. People are like, I don't really do the whole Bible thing. I just know that God is love. Where in the earth did you get that? Well, from the Bible, but it's, but you said the Bible wasn't true. Well, that part was true. Okay. The parts you like are true. Parts that you don't like are not. I get it. It's not their highest authority. What they've done, whereas other churches have brought up tradition and teaching and this sort of stuff, he says, you know what? My feelings are on par with scripture. Uh, it's not even above scripture. They're just next to it. And I reconcile my feelings with scripture. And I don't like that part about Jesus in the temple whipping people. That's not the kumbaya Jesus I like. Jesus loves me. This I know for. The... Yeah. And sometimes he whip people, right? Get used to it. Have you read Revelation? It gets worse. Okay. <laughs> the cross one time deal. Okay right? And so we elevate our feelings, we elevate our experience, and we say, you know what? I'm going to reconcile the Bible to my feelings. I'm going to reconcile the Bible to my experience. And what happens is you end up reading the Bible through the lens of your experience, not your experience through the lens of the Bible. And so what we want to do is just simply course correct. And I pray that this teaching, this exegesis of this concept just emboldens you to crack the word of God and say, this is true. And I need more truth in my life. And so the formal principle in Anglicanism is the Bible, the authority of the church, and reason. Those three things, when they, in, when they come in cohesion, they take a statistical cross-section, and that's where truth is. And so if my reason doesn't necessarily coincide with the Bible, that part's not really true. Or if the authority of the church says something different, then, then we can't, if we're not reconciling those things, it's not actual declared truth. In Calvinism, don't get all worried about Calvinism, right? The Bible is the sole standard of all truth, sola scriptura. We agree. Cool. Let's just talk about that more with them, okay? Right? It's not even two sides. There's like Jesus in the middle, like you're both wrong. Arminians, be quiet. Calvins, pipe down, right? And he's like, I'm right in the middle with the Bible, okay? You guys are answering questions no one's asking, you know? (laughs) The Bible, they are. They really are. At what point in predestination? No one cares. You're predestined, amen? Done. All right, so... Yeah, but there's five stages, please. Okay, so the Bible is the sole standard of all truth, Sola scripture, Calvinism, cool, we agree. Moving on, Eastern Orthodoxy, the Bible and tradition. Sound familiar? Still exists today. Sound familiar? Jesus shows up and says, your tradition makes the word of God of no effect. Lutheranism, which I grew up in, my dad's still a pastor. He's recently left the ELCA, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. He's moved on to a different denomination because they've lost Sola Scriptura. It's like you're calling yourself Lutheran and you don't get Sola Scriptura from the Protestant Reformation. Forget it. I was terrible at history. I could see that at least. Right? You're going to call yourself Lutheran. You might want to read a little bit more about what Luther said. All right? The Bible alone, Sola Scriptura. They get it in theory. They're starting to get away from it. Why do you think their numbers are going? At what was it? The Presbyterian Church? Where's Ben? Presbyterian church just removed what? In Christ alone from their hymnal? Because it talks about God's wrath. That's mean. Yeah, yeah, Jesus shows up and says, you know what? Sometimes I need to be mean. They they won't won't sing in Christ alone anymore. The epic hymn in Christ alone. Because on the cross, God's wrath was satisfied. It says wrath, and wrath isn't nice. So we're not going to sing that anymore, right? Forget it. That's a whole other thing. All right, so (laughs) Methodism, the Bible, reason, teachings of the ancient church. Those all must be reconciled in order for spiritual truth. Roman Catholicism, which, of course, really spurred on the Protestant Reformation. Protestant, protest, int, okay? Right? The Bible, sacred tradition, reason, the Pope, magisterium. All those things come together and declare truth. Okay? And Zwingliism, who knows Zwingli? No one does. That's okay. The Bible, direct revelation from the Holy Spirit. We kind of like that one, right? Kind of down with that different edge to it. And so again, what this is discussing is this formal principle, this understanding of where do you get your theology? My question to you is where do you get yours? Because it's easy to look at these and be like, those guys don't get it. Right? And we're in a non denominational church and we've only got you know Calvary Chapel history back to the sixties and stuff like that. I'm like, well, it's tradition you know. But but where do we elevate our feelings? Where do we elevate our experience and say, you know what, I need to reconcile that. We crack it we're like, I don't like that part. I don't like the, really the whole Old Testament. I mean, I mean the part where the guy like, tried to save the Ark of the Covenant from falling and God killed him. That doesn't make sense. Let's just pretend that was an analogy. Right? How can we do that? Oh, Hosea wasn't told by God to actually marry a prostitute. It was all allegorical and can't really happen. Awesome, then Jesus can't marry the church. Right? And where you get these principal sources of theology is key and it's foundational. Again, truth, love, righteousness, it hinges on truth. And truth is something America does not get. And what is truth? What is truth? I would submit to you this, because I'm a definition dork. You guys know that. I would submit to you that truth is God's perception of our reality. God's perception of our reality, or of reality in general, God's perception of reality is truth. We have to take it away from our perception. We see things differently. God sees, he looks down and he says, "You know what? There is male and female." Regardless of California's attempt to say that you can just sort of choose, I've stamped a Y chromosome into your body that you can't get rid of. You're either male or you're female. He looks down and, "You know what? He doesn't even see like people that are dating. He sees married and unmarried. That's it. He sees married and unmarried. You're married and this is what marriage is. It's his perception. The world is going to talk and talk and talk. We have our entire history. Truth is God's perception of reality. And so in this formal principle, we begin to see that we're identifying the source of theology. And the question from people who oppose sola scriptura, some of the opposition comes from this. And again, don't get boggled down in the minutiae. Don't get boggled down in the slides. They're there to supplement, but I don't want us to lose track. I simply want to build confidence. Because right now, Pastor Rob is cracking the Bible in L.A., Right? Like this morning, we just cracked the Bible. At night, I hope we're, we're, just, we're just cracking the Bible. And do you have confidence when you do that? Is this a book of rules or is this God's revelation? It's his revelation. So when we crack it, something amazing is happening. And God saw fit to protect it and to bring it to such. So that we could have it so that we could know him and we could know about him. That's the point of the Bible. Contrary to popular belief, it's not about us. It's not. Read the whole thing. You're not in it. No one made it. Right? <laughs> Even the guys that made it were screwed up, right? Okay? Imagine if you were in it, right? And so the first question is this. It says, is the Bible alone sufficient for spiritual truth? Spiritual truth. Where do you get it from? Formal principle, we declare the scriptures alone are our highest authority. That which the Bible addresses, it is the absolute top final Supreme Court on the whole deal. No matter what happens, it is the Supreme Court. Well, I don't feel like serving the church today. You know what you're doing? You're just elevating your feelings on par with Scripture. I don't feel like showing up. I don't, that doesn't mean you have to to be saved. But the church is to be about service, right? I don't, I, don't feel, I don't feel like serving the church. You're just saying, my feelings are just as important as God's declaration that, yeah, no, the church is supposed to be about service. Yeah, no, you are supposed to help out in children's ministry. It doesn't mean you have to to be saved. It says if you are saved, you'll probably want to. And our God is a God that actually converts desires. He says he will regenerate your heart and put a new spirit in you. He has that power. People are like, well, it's just, I just don't feel like it. Then ask for new feelings. I serve a God that just flat out changes people's feelings. Right? And so is the Bible alone sufficient for spiritual truth? That's the question. They would, op- opponents of this would say No. I'm going to simply build the the case in the affirm. I'm not going to talk about what not to believe. I'm going to talk about what we should. What we should. Because all this is predicated on the fact that we have a foundation in God's word. That all points to Jesus. God's word. See how that works? It's like he planned it or something. Right? (laughs) Is the Bible alone sufficient for spiritual truth? The first one is this. Yes. Definitively. Because the New Testament authors and Jesus himself appealed to scriptures as the highest authority. Pretty good model, right? Like Jesus modeled everything perfectly. And what happened when Satan was tempting him in Matthew 4? He quotes the Bible three times. Satan tries, quotes the Bible. Okay, well, fine, I'll try this. Quotes the Bible. Okay, well, then and quotes the Bible. And then Jesus kicks off his public ministry. The Bible was sufficient to refute the grandest of all liars. We think we have to come up with something else to refute your neighbor, right? It's like, hey, Tom, you know, like, let me tell you about my feeling. no. You speak to them of the truth revealed in God's word, right? And I'll give you examples. Some others, we'll run through a couple other ones. You've got Matthew 21, 42. Again, I can send all this to you. Don't scribble it down. Don't get crazy. Jesus' authority is being questioned. He teaches in parables. And what does he do? He quotes scripture. He he models for us that this is our defense, that the word is active and alive, sharper than any two-edged sword. And he uses it to divide the crap of the world. He does it. He just said crap, Right? Mark 10:5 through 8. I'm a co- I'm a college guy. I'm a college pastor. They they don't even flinch when I say crap, right? They're like, <laughs> right? Mark 10:5 through 8. Jesus is questioned about divorce, right? And you always notice that Jesus what I love about Jesus, he always elevates the answer above the question. They're like, "Hey, how can I divorce well?" He's like, "Let me tell you what marriage is." Don't you love that? Like he essentially this is my interpretation. He's essentially like, "Look, your question is petty. Let me actually give you some substance." Hey, how do I divorce my wife well? How how do we do this? How do we get out of that? He says, you know what? You don't even get marriage. And what does he do? Talks about the tradition of the church, what it's taught at that point. No, he reaches back into Genesis. And he says, this is what marriage is. Male and female, cleave together. Right? They become one. He quotes scripture. Good enough for Jesus, good enough for me. Right? Another one's, John 2, is when John's giving his testimony as to who he is. He quotes Isaiah, 1 Corinthians 15, 3-4. Uh, Christ died for us according to the scriptures, 1 Peter 1, 2 Peter 1, Acts 17, etc., 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 etc. New Testament authors and Jesus himself saw that the scriptures were sufficient for spiritual truth. Jesus didn't even have the New Testament. Right? I'm like, Ugh. Yeah, Maybe a little different perspective on, on our bias against the Old Testament, yes? That's all he had to teach from, and he did it all the time. He handled Bible studies. I can't wait for those Bible studies. He's going to give them again. He's going to reveal all things that concern him, as he did to the disciples. It's amazing. Number two, is the Bible alone sufficient for spiritual truth? The doctrine of Sola Scriptura is the same as the doctrine of Trinity. See, people will say this, say, okay, Mark, the Bible alone is our highest authority. Show me where it says that in the Bible. I'm like, clever. It's right next to the word Trinity. Right? Do you believe in the Trinity? Of course. Not an idiot. Where's Trinity found in the Bible? Nowhere. Well, see, they don't say Trinity, but they describe that it's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Cool. They don't say scola scriptura, but they describe that it's sufficient for spiritual truth. It's explained. It's not stated. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with man saying, God is three persons and one is a Trinity. And the case that we're going to build equates to the Bible alone is our highest authority. So when someone asks, where does it say the Bible alone is our, only, or is our highest authority in the Bible, you say right next to the word Trinity, and then just let them go f- try to find it, right? Like, this is what's going to happen. They're going to go, hold on a second, right? They're going to Google it. Trinity's not in there, right? Then they're back at square one. Number three, is the Bible alone sufficient for spiritual truth? Three, the Bible doesn't say tradition is inerrant or inspired as it says about itself. Jesus just shows up, and who's he tussling with? The religious folks, with all the tradition in the world. With all the feelings, and all the church authority, and all the elder boards, and all the Bibles, everything in their pocket. All the experience in the world. And he shows up, and he says, I'm going to use scripture to refute your tradition. And that's what he just did in the passage, yes? He says, What did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. He's quoting scripture. He saw fit that scripture alone was the highest authority in these instances. Jesus is modeling for us the doctrine of sola scriptura. And so the Bible doesn't say tradition is inherent. In fact, it has plenty to say in the opposite. Now, some of you are remembering, I think it's 2 Thessalonians, it says, holds your traditions, right? You're like, okay, Bible contradiction, <laughs> right? No, what are the traditions that it's speaking to in that context? The traditions of the gospel, Right? We, we see these all the time, that we congregate as people, that we meet, that we pray, that we study, that we, we serve. These are the traditions of the gospel. How do we know they're real and they're good and they're true? Hey, right? Praise God that we have a God that says, you know what, I'm going to tell you some stuff about me so that you can mm, sniff out all the phonies, right? Right? Wouldn't that be a cruel God that's like, you know what, just try to figure it out, Right? That guy said that, right? I mean, how many perverse things have come from people declaring that God told them this? I got a word from God. What'd he say? He said, We should move to Montana, not pay taxes, build a compound, marry little girls. No, we shouldn't. Who are you to say no? He just heard from God. That's not God. How do you know? Thank goodness. Right? Thank goodness. There's a lot of weird stuff that could come out if God didn't say, you know what? I'm going to tell you about myself so that you'll know who's lying about me. That's what sola scriptura affirms, and so it doesn't say tradition is inerrant like it does itself. This is a good list. I love this one. Paul says in Second Timothy three sixteen, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. It hinges on truth. We understand it to be love. And it produces righteousness. That's the point. Peter says in 2 Peter 1: for no prophecy, what is prophecy? Real quick, prophecy is God's word through flesh, pointing to God's word as flesh. That's Jesus. Okay? So all prophecy comes through man and points to Jesus. So if it doesn't point to Jesus, not prophecy, right? God's word through flesh pointing to God's word as flesh. The entire Bible, as I said, on September 8th, I'm going to teach Solus Christus. We're just going to do a casual study about the whole Bible, right? Just casual, 48 minutes, right? About the whole Bible being about Jesus. Everything, even the book of Esther. Who's read Esther? Yeah, no one's read Esther, right? I can't stand Esther. No God, no Jesus, no praying, no worship, no angels, nothing. What's it all about? A bad king, Xerxes. Who's the good king? Jesus. All that sort of stuff. Every book about Jesus. Hosea married a prostitute so that we could understand that Jesus would marry us. Prostitutes. Right? And so everything, prophecy, comes through flesh from God, pointing to flesh as God. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Paul in 1 Corinthians 14 says, if anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, and we get those people, right? I'm going I'm a reincarnate Jesus. Sure you are, pal. If anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. And then Jesus says in John 14, but the helper, this is a big one. Jesus says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, Jesus Died and said, when he he ascended, he said, what? It's better for you that I what? Go. My college pastor from college wrote a book called Better Off Without Jesus. People were like, heretic. Read the fine print at the bottom. It says, dash, Jesus. He said it. He said, it's better that I go. Why? Send the Holy Spirit. Go global, right? Because Jesus was, for the most part, confined in the incarnation to Galilee. He says, you know what? Holy Spirit, not so much. We saw the Father with Israel. We saw Jesus in the New Testament. We see the Holy Spirit today. We neglect him. And he says this. He says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. See, there's a huge misconception. Yeah, but there's so many interpretations of the Bible. There are. Most of them are False. How do I know? There is one true interpreter of Scripture. It's the Holy Spirit. See, my job is not to interpret Scripture in and of it myself and then just give it to you what I think. It's to submit to the Holy Spirit's interpretation throughout the week. And so if I casually show up on a Sunday having only done a little bit of study and just gotten the academic notes, yeah, it's going to be a terrible, terrible teaching because God wasn't a part of it. And it's going to be me. It's all going to be death and destruction from there on out because I'll get, and I still, my my flesh still wars against God, and I still insert myself where God says, no, genius, it's this. I use genius. uh, The Holy Spirit interprets Scripture, not the church. We simply open ourselves up, the pastors simply open ourselves up as vessels to be used by God for his interpretation. The Holy Spirit interprets Scripture, not us. Number four says, if the Bible is not used to verify and test religious tradition, tradition is functionally independent of God's word and circular and reasoning. Now, I'm here to declare to you today that I don't do this full time. See, I'm an online uh, marketing guy, I work for a shoe company. Okay, now all the ladies look at my shoes to judge me, right? <laughs> guys are like, Meh. okay. I'm the, only, one in the ro- only guy in the room that likes shoes as much as girls. Okay, so <laughs> I've just lost half the guys, too. They're like, And the white sweater, really, come on. It's like 90 degrees outside, right? If I show up and I tell you that I'm the best marketing director in the fashion industry, and you say, okay, I think you're full of it, but I'd like to see some sources, and I say, head over to my blog, marklesney.com, and you'll be able to read an authoritative article on the topic. What have I done? I've just made it functionally independent of any objective source. It's me telling you that I'm amazing. <laughs> and so we have a tradition sometimes in sects of Christendom that says, why is tradition on par with scripture? Well, because tradition says so. Cool. Why don't you just point me to your blog, which says the same. There must be a Supreme Court. There must be something by which God says, look, you're right on that, but you got it so wrong on that. That's, he's in the business of doing that. And so, Sola Scriptura, the Bible is our highest authority. Again, there are places that the church speaks into that the Bible doesn't address, and that's what the church is for. But ultimately, we are not independent of God's word. We are not. It exists. It's true whether you like it or not. It's like Jesus having the keys to hell. Whether you think you're going to die and just race off into eternity and not have to deal with Jesus, doesn't matter. Revelation 1 says he holds the keys to hell. You're going to meet Jesus one way or the other. Satan doesn't rule hell. He's not down there like, well, at least the party people got their own pad. Right? <laughs> functionally indep- No, we're not functionally independent of that. God's word says you will meet Jesus. God's word says it is sufficient for spiritual truth. And so it's circular in reasoning. Number five. Religious tradition is invalidated automatically if it contradicts scripture, and it does. Again, this is coming from the Protestant Reformation. Things like purgatory, penance, indulgences, praying to Mary. You can be confident. I spent about a year studying Catholic theology. It's not there. Okay? This is not, again, to bash Catholics, but you need to know that when tradition contradicts scripture, it's immediately and automatically invalidated. And when your feelings contradict scripture, but my, but my feelings, are, no, they're not yours. They're subject to God. They're not yours. Your emotions were given to you to experience in a small, fractured way, him. Sometimes I'm angry, and there's righteous anger to be had. And I'm jealous sometimes, and there's righteous jealousy to be had. And at times I'm really happy, and there's joy to be had. God gave you those emotions. They're subject to him. So your emotions are invalidated automatically when they contradict scripture. That's tough, right? Your experience is invalidated automatically when it contradicts scripture. I have two I had two roommates in college that I love dearly, still good friends with them. And we had a sociology professor that actually came to our dorm room to interview us. Best sociology professor, he was a man of God, he was one of six like not politically but like religiously conservative professors, 103 faculty at the time at CLU. And he came to our dorm room, Dr. Hall, Charles Hall. He's now like dean of students or something at Pepperdine. It's great. And um, CLU couldn't keep him because they, anyway. And so <laughs> I love that school. I still teach there. It's okay. So um, but he came to our room and he sat us down and he wanted to ask about homosexuality, and I was a social minor, I I was double majoring at the time, so he kind of knew me as a major, but then I eventually just minor, because that just meant I didn't have to take the hard classes, right, and then, and so he sat us down, all three of us, church going, Bible believing, Jesus loving, working it out, college, that whole thing, like sober guys, like we had tons of fun in college, remembered every second of it, you know, like we weren't drunk, like we had a good time, we were running around with a video camera being stupid, you know, that sort of stuff, filming the drunk people, okay, and then and so the three of us are sitting there and I was a little shocked because he sat down and he said, look, I want to I wanna ask you about some of the homosexuality stuff because this, this debate's been going on for like decades and it's still going. Right? And the church is just crippling because of it. It's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. We need to be loving and caring. We need to understand the restorative work, all that. But he sits down and and he says, you know, where, where are you guys on the issue? And I said, you know, the, the entire arc of, of scripture from, from the creation account to the Levitical and Old Testament law to the lips of Jesus affirming Genesis to what marriage is and, and, and the whole bridal paradigm and the understanding of the sexes and God's order and he sets everything up. I was like, yeah, it's just no-brainer. No Look over at my friend and he's like, ah, I think differently. And the, pastor go, or the, the professor says, why? He says, because I've met some of my gay I, I've got gay friends and, and they, just, they tell me that it feels natural. And I'm like, my head starts spinning. I'm like, well, what do you mean by natural? I mean, our natural state is fractured and sinful. And I didn't say this, but I was just, I was in turmoil because I saw what I saw was, here's what the Bible says, you know what? Eh, I didn't juxtapose with how I feel about it. And so where do we do that? I don't feel like serving us. Again, ask that God would change your desires. Submit your desires to the word of God. Because your feelings, your traditions are invalidated automatically if it contradicts scripture. And and even, this isn't, again, it's not focusing on the Catholic Church. We do the same dang thing with our comfort. How's your comfort working out for you, Southern California? Like, that's your entire goal. Like, I'll get closer to Jesus once I've got, and you know it. So many people have have come a long way in your careers and up the ladders. There's no peace. There's none. You're just going for comfort. You'll never be comfortable. In fact, Acts 4 says if you're in Christ, you're going to be persecuted. It's actually a promise. It's not even a proverb, which is most of the time true. That's a promise from Acts 4. It says, if you're in Christ, you will be persecuted. You're like, well, that's weird because I'm not persecuted. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Did he just question my faith? (laughs) No, God's word questions your faith. It gives you litmus tests to understand if you are in Christ. And you simply fall on your knees and say, then show me the way. Right? And so number six, the church simply recognized inspired books of the Bible. We didn't dictate it. No council got together and said, you know what? There's been a lot of good books written by a lot of good men. Let's figure out which ones should be called God's word. When you say it like that, you see how ridiculous it is? That God just sort of like helped people and they're like, but just kind of fi- figure it out. That's not a sovereign God. That's a God that leaves things up to chance. I, I hope they picked the 66 I chose. Oh, <laughs> uh, they got 65. Oh, well. We'll, well, we'll forget about Esther, you know, right? And and, oh, they got pretty close, 75%. That's not bad. They forgot a few. They're still over there in that cave in Israel, but whatever. No, he's he's in the business of revealing himself to us because the whole Bible points to Jesus. His purpose in his word is that we would know Jesus. His purpose in sending Jesus to the cross, to the earth, to minister, is so that we would know him, that we would see him. The cross happened thousands of years ago. But we still have God's word. And even as Protestants, even as Calvary Chapel goers, I don't think we hold it high enough. I don't think we crack it and actually feel that way about it. Ask that God would regenerate those desires. That he would give you a hunger for God's word. Pastors know this. Pastor Dave knows this. Pastor Brett knows this. When you're blessed to be able to teach, you get up at the end of the week and you're like, how do I summarize seven days of God chasing me? I got 48 minutes. Go. Uh, open your Bibles. Oh, crap, I'm losing time, right? <laughs> People aren't even open yet, right? Come on, right? We feel like we cheat you guys because we study it day in and day out and we meditate on I drive a motorcycle full time. Like you guys have come up next to me you're like, he won't even look at me. It's because I'm like thinking about scripture. I'm like doing 90 on the 101, right? Which is a sin. I get that, right? <laughs> Relax, okay? But we don't, but we feel like we cheat you because we're just like, we can't get, we, we, there's nothing we can say. And that's true, there's actually nothing I can say to encourage you to read your Bible more. But what you can do is say, God, give me a new desire to learn about. Because if Jesus was here, would you not study with him? If God's capital W, Word, was here, you'd all be lining up, yes? And we're like, ah, this is a chore. God's Word is here, yeah, but it's not the capital W Word, so it's not as big. It's not Jesus. The whole thing points to Jesus. The whole thing is contextualized around Jesus. This is God's word so that we wouldn't have had to have been alive during Jesus to know God, to be reconciled to God. And so the church simply recognized inspired books of the Bible. I'll give you a few examples. Again, I wrote church councils formalized and officially recognized writings that God's people had already accepted. Oh my gosh, it's 44 minutes. How are we going to get through this? and used as inspired scripture for hundreds in the New Testament, thousands in the Old Testament, the Council of Laodicea in AD 363, Council of Hippo 393, the Council of Carthage AD 397. Church councils simply acknowledged the scriptures that were ready and trusted, already trusted by Christians everywhere. And Jesus said, "My sheep will hear my voice and I will and I know them and they follow me" in John 10. So here's a question. You guys ready for like a speed session? Here we go, right? Here it is. Is the church, Is the church? proponents will say, yes, but the church is the bulwark for the truth. Correct? Bulwark. Do we agree? Yeah, why? Because the Bible says so. Notice how they refer to scripture. That's the first point, right? And so 1 Timothy 3.15 says, I write to you so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourselves in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar of the ground of truth. Other translations may say bulwark, buttress, foundation. Cool, the church is the bulwark for the truth. What does bulwark mean? It's a wall-like structure raised in defense of something. The church defends truth. It does not define truth. God defines truth. It's his perception of reality. It's the church's job to properly handle it and defend it. Is the church the bulwark of truth? Yes. But what does bulwark mean? It means you defend it. It doesn't mean you define it. Amen? And it says this, and then you'll hear, but is the, isn't Peter the rock upon which Jesus builds his church? No. No. The answer is no. I asked this last night on Facebook to a friend that was railing me about this. Right? Do you believe that the church is founded upon unstable Peter? He was. He was unstable. Mightily used of God, but unstable. He lacked faith. He was corrected. He was wrong at times. Right? Can you imagine just having Jesus show up and be like, hey, tell you what, uh, shoulder the weight of the church. Good luck with that. Right? This is an apostle. He couldn't do it. Right? Real fast, Matthew sixteen, eighteen says, And also I will say to you that you are Peter, Petro, and on this rock, Petra, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail. Jesus is referring to himself. Jesus is the cornerstone. And so it's akin to saying, You're a good actor, and it's upon this actress that I will write my script. Okay, it's a masculine form when he speaks to Peter. It's a feminine form when he speaks to the rock that he's going to build a church on. That's the same feminine form that is found in every instance of Jesus referring to himself in the Old Testament, referring to Jesus as the rock. It's a simple word study. Jesus, thank goodness, the church is not about us, right? Look around. You trust these people? Look at Micah's hair for crying out loud. You trust him? You trust him to shoulder the church? Not quite, right? Dude just got back from a honeymoon. He's like, mm. hey. I can't shoulder a thing right now, right? And yeah, we get it. It's a sex joke at 9.30. It's all right. <laughs> Jesus is the rock. We see that in Deuteronomy 32, 2 Samuel 22, Psalm 18, Isaiah 44, Romans 9. John 1, it says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Is the Bible God? No. The Bible is not God. We do not worship the Bible. We worship the God of the Bible. Big difference big difference. There's two ways to view the Bible. One is that it's above you. Some of you are going to be offended here pretty soon. One way is to view the Bible as above you and you submit to it. It's not in a lording way, but it's in a loving, caring way. It reveals God. The other way is to say, you know what? Scrap that. This is how I see the Bible. Some of you are offended right now because you worship the Bible. You think this copy is perfect. It's not. Right? I would ask you, how do you view the Bible? Is it your soul, and highest authority, because a word is what? It says the word was with God, and the word was God. What is a word? It's communication, right? And so the word is perfect communication of God's attributes. It's perfect theology. Jesus was perfect theology, Im- embodied. Jesus was living, breathing theology. The word is perfect communication. Somebody say, wait, well, you just said it wasn't perfect. Real fast, the next slide's going to freak a lot of you out, especially if you were a An amazing student like I was. Here's the manuscript evidence. If you take any work of antiquity seriously, by tens of thousands of times more, you should take the Bible seriously. When we speak of the perfect nature of the Bible, it is the original autographs. It's the original autographs. Homer, for instance, was written 900 B.C., the earliest copies, about 400 B.C., 500 years were spanned. This is the best on the chart, 643 copies. Plato, Aristotle, 1100, 1400, 49. You get to the New Testament alone, you've got less than 30 year time span. You've got over 5,600 Greek documents alone that verify the New Testament. You have over 24,000 when you combine all the other languages. And let me speak to the historicity real fast. The historical evidence is prophecy. A quarter of the Bible was prophetic at the time of its writing. 25%. 100 percent. I don't believe the Bible. Cool. Could you tell me one prophecy it predicted that hasn't come true? Can you tell me one? If it was said to have been completed by now, it has 100 percent of the time. You can take that to the bank. And Revelation, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. It could happen in three minutes. Archaeology, 25,000 discoveries verify names, places, events, customs. This is the second service already. I forget what I've already talked about. Have we talked about Jericho? Jericho. You know that archaeology has uncovered the, quote, contradiction with the understanding of Jericho? Two of the synoptic gospels talk about a man coming from Jericho. The other one says a man went to Jericho. You know that archaeology has uncovered two Jerichos? Praise God, by common grace, the Bible continues to get more and more validation as the years goes on, not less. Why do you think they don't talk about it on the news? They don't talk about, like, National Geographic, what? Another discovery to verify, forget it, it's old news. We're not gonna talk about it, right? Because it just continues to verify the Bible over and over and over. We have more evidence now than ever before. We do. Unity, Pastor Dave Johnson, I love the way he says it. 66 books, over 1,500 years, 40 authors, three continents, three languages, one theme, that's Jesus, zero contradictions, that's the Bible. Right? I practice that. (laughs) Church fathers, church fathers, Guys studying the original autographs, studying it, right? Anyone read a commentary, modern day commentary? I love Guzik's. What does he do? Pulls out section verbatim, puts it on his commentary, writes a note about it, but shows you what scripture, right? Over 86,000 commentaries have been compiled of guys placing, taking verbatim scripture from the original content put onto their commentary and then just give a note about what they're thinking about or what God's doing in their life about. 86,000, we have reconstructed 99.86% of the New Testament and only 11 verses are in any sort of minor dispute. 11 verses, not one single one hinges on or is even a supplemental text to any Christian doctrine taught today. None of it. I'll show you real fast errors in scriptures. They look like this. Now keep in mind, you got you to feel for the 14-year-old scribe at the time who's in a, locked away in an office for like 14 years writing the Bible by hand. And when he makes a mistake, guess what happens? He starts over, okay? Poor dude, every once in a while he encounters didiography, which is where later becomes ladder. Are you going to hold that against him? Right? Two Ts, he's like, oh, I can let it slide or I can start all over. let's go, right? (laughs) Next one, number two, fission, this is where nowhere becomes now here, extra space or start over. Number three, fusion, therein becomes therein, come on, really? How many times have you forgotten to hit the space bar, right? Word does it for you now, for crying out loud. Number four, homophony, this is where meat becomes meat. Now this one can be a little confusing, like, hey, we should meet tomorrow, like, are we eating or are we hanging out? Is meat like a verb now? Is that like something we do? I mean, at Calvary Chapel, we do meat, right? <laughs> Number five, metathesis. This is where mass become mats. All this is to say, none of this has any bearing whatsoever on any theological understanding of anything. It's by grace you've been saved through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. Put it in the bank, 100% verified. 11 tiny little fraction. Blah, blah, blah. This copy in your hand is 98.5% historically verified pure. No other work of antiquity has this. And they teach it like this is just broken. It's nonsense. The Bible is inspired. It's inerrant. Absolutely. God sees fit to construct this and to know that we can be confident in knowing him and the truth about him and about Jesus. And so do we worship the Bible? Absolutely not. The Bible was given, it was established, it has been sustained by God himself despite our attempt to muck it up. God will see fit that we can crack the Bible and confidently say, I am learning from the one true living God truth about him so that I can be emboldened before the world and I can understand God and that I can submit all things that I feel natural and emotional and experiential I can submit all that to the supreme court which is him praise God we don't serve a God that says you know what just kind of figure it out he says this is who I am and this is how you are reconciled to me and that's through Christ on the cross and so we come to the end of this and we don't worship the Bible We worship the God of the Bible and we worship Jesus. The Bible is an act of service to us. God came to serve us in Christ. And today he comes to us lovingly to serve us through his word. And I pray as we bring the the worship team up and the prayer team. That we simply pray to a God that changes our hearts. That we would have a renewed passion for the Bible in a reverence for what God has declared about himself to be our highest authority. Sola Scriptura, the Bible alone is our highest authority. And Jesus shows up and says, your traditions, your feelings, your experiences, apart from God's word, make it of no effect. And that was never his intent. The intent of the Bible is to know Jesus and to know peace. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, again, we just thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus, the word come as flesh, that we could be reconciled. We acknowledge that you created us. You've been working all this together for good since before time began. You saw fit to create. We rebelled. You saw fit to pursue us in the garden. You saw fit to pursue us in Jesus and on the cross. You saw fit to pursue us as the Holy Spirit. You see fit to pursue us in the end as Jesus returns to reign. And you see fit right now to use your word, the scriptures, as our highest authority, which are active and alive and sharper than any two-edged sword, to cut through the intents and the thoughts of us today. And I pray that we would just have a new confidence in the word and a new openness to being divided by your revelation. Thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that you love us so much that you gave us a handheld copy of your authority. In Jesus' name, amen.